Gorman, <laughs> it's good to see you, Des. It's good to see you too, Tyson. Yeah, it's 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 been uh, it's been a few years now since I saw you. I just um, it's it's so lovely, so lovely to be able to have you in, on the on this podcast and and have a yarn with you. Um, just your your voice as a Maori fella from from New Zealand. Um, it's somehow it's not about centering your voice as a native person or about representation um but it's about the quality of your thought your analysis um your long-term forecasting uh so we met at at a conference on um, disruptive innovation in health and medicine and um i just i don't know i was wasn't looking forward to it but i was just entertained completely the whole time um, watching professors r run off to the bathroom to cry and <laughs> you weren't saying very much um, that was giving anybody comfort. Like I recall a lot of, you know, so um, AIs are going to be doing your job soon, half of you. How do you feel about that? And uh, <laughs> all these lovely things. Um, yeah, a lot of people struggle with it. I just had a ball. It was the best week of my life um, <laughs> up to that point. I had a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, really looking forward to just um, yarning about the future and uh, public health and, and all these kinds of things. Um, yeah, if you want to intro yourself, um, yeah, obviously well, better than I've done it. And, um, <laughs> off we go. Yeah, well, kia ora tato. Um, clearly you can see I'm the white sheep of our family. Uh, my mother, <laughs> my mother was Maori. Dad was European from Australia, and uh, I was raised at a time in New Zealand where um, it wasn't fashionable to be Maori. So I was raised uh, assiduously avoiding my own culture and um, being blue-eyed and fair-haired. At least I was. Uh, I'm still blue-eyed. I was fair-haired. Um, it was easy for me to slip under the racial radar. Until your mum comes to pick you up from school. Yeah, She's yeah, black yeah. ass. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and um, when I was with my grandmother, uh, people would often wonder what that old Maori lady was doing, that Pākehā child. <laughs> um, so I think uh, there's an increasing awareness, there's a whole generation of us who uh, are remarkably literate in terms of our own culture, but who recognise that we need to contribute. And that although 
the natural inclination is to step back because you're not fluent in tikanga or tarao, and you go into the marae, you're not sure what you should do. And so the natural inclination is to step back. Hmm. But in fact, uh, I think that's a mistake. It's a mistake in the sense that we have something to contribute. Mm. Uh, and I think it's also a mistake of younger people who are uh, fluent in Tarao and uh, are also knowledgeable about tikanga, which is our culture, to say, well, we're good Māoris. That's not a good Māori because uh, they don't understand their own culture as well as they do. Mm. I think that sort of elitism actually is harmful for us because it alienates people who could make a difference yeah. and should make a difference. Mm. And I think um, my generation uh, only now is beginning to find a voice. Mm. And that voice, of course, is that the inequities in the health outcomes for Māori and Pacifica people versus other New Zealanders has now got to the point where it is entrenched. Yeah. Uh, and that the idea that doing more of the same thing will fix the problem is absurd. To expect the way we've gone about business and healthcare to fix the problem when in fact that's what created it mm. is absurd. Uh, and so I think there's a growing recognition that uh, things have to be done very differently. Mm. And we've seen that with the vaccine rollout for COVID where the public health units uh, were profoundly ineffective in accessing Māori for vaccination. Mm. And Māori were lagging way behind Europeans in terms of vaccination rates. Now, Māori are now approaching 90% first vaccination, but that's only because uh, iwi groups, that's tribal groups, community groups, trusts, Māori-led health providers have become involved. Mm. Um, people who the community trusts, people who the community knows, uh, people who, when they uh, explain something, do so in a way which is assimilable. Mm. Uh, and it's a classic demonstration that the assumption was that what would work for a predominantly European or Asian communities would always work hmm. for Māori and Pacific communities, and it's just wrong, completely wrong. So New Zealand's undergoing yet another health reform at the moment. Um, every incoming government decides to reform health. Uh, what drives them... Uh, uh, two things, and that is um, the equity issue, and the other thing is a funding issue. Mm. So every incoming government tries to resolve that with another health reform. And this current bunch of health reforms um, is, like most of them, completely misguided. Mm. Uh, we have a, a socialist government that has an obsession with centralised command and control. So they think that by taking all the, the peripheral bureaucracies and focusing them all in the capital in Wellington will solve the problem. 
mm. not very Keynesian economics. Yeah. Uh, but the reality is, no matter how effective your central bureaucracies are, you need to show how what you're doing will change people's experience of the health system. Mm. As you uh, that you remember that program you did around disruptive uh, health innovations, that they are disruptive, sure, but they've got to be driven by clarity about what it is you're trying to achieve for the customers. And the yeah. customers here, of course, are <clears throat> people who consume healthcare, people who provide healthcare, and people who fund healthcare, and so on. Mm. And like any other service industry, you have to have clarity around what is it that you're trying to achieve for your customer. Mm. I've spoken to many, many business groups who are, most of whom are service industries, and I'd say to them, what's at the cornerstone of any reform of industry? And I said, the customer experience. Mm. Yet here we are in health embarking on big structural reforms without any idea at all what the customer experience is or needs to be. And so I'd say to them, well, look, it's great that you're creating a Maori Health Funding Authority in Wellington, but how will that help one of my nephews in Northland who's self-medicating with alcohol and meth? How will that help them find a place to live and a job? Yeah. Because I know from the work that I've done up there, the resolution of drug dependency and mental health issues amongst young Maori uh, is best achieved through finding accommodation and employment. Mm. Not, not through uh, uh, tricyclic antidepressants or SSRIs or even talking therapies. Yeah. Two needs, uh, a place to live mm. and a job or education towards mm. a job. So the question very simply is, well, that's great to put a new Murray Health Authority how will that help these people find a place to live and a job? Mm. Of course, that's the bit that's missing. Yeah. Yet it's actually the only bit that matters. It is. And uh, it's, it's, it's impossible with the, I mean, the governance model um, that most of us are having to follow, you know, um, whereby, as you say, that, that power becomes centralised you know, and well, but then to retain power, you, you need to be able to, um, you know, show uh, show change or growth in in the most popular metrics of the day, yeah. um, in order to hold on to it. So that's um, I, I, I do recall a keynote from that um, conference that we were at, and and it was one of the big celebrated uh, disruptive innovations there, and it was a fella um, who you know there was a hospital um where there were right across you know all the different units in the hospital there were a, a, a lot of deaths there was a big spike in deaths you know right across i don't know if you remember this fellow um but he came in with a disruptive in innovation and brought the numbers of deaths right down which is pretty exciting except how he did it was he would just you know anybody who was really sick you know no matter where they were he would have them registered in the palliative care unit because you don't count the deaths in the palliative care because of course everyone's going to die so he would actually even it, it wouldn't matter where they were uh actually in a bed in the hospital um you know if they were you know seriously ill they would be placed in the palliative care so what happened is that the 
the actual number of deaths probably stayed the same or even increased because they didn't change anything in what they were doing, but they just changed the way they were counting it. And so the metrics were lower and that was the disruptive innovation that was being celebrated there. Um, yeah, well, you know, the, uh, I mean, that's, that's egregious. Um, the, uh, I think uh, several points from what you can First of all, uh, politics is an exercise in populism. One of yours? Yeah. Yep. So this is my little one. So uh, one of them, yeah, one of the two is um, is, is quite fair. <laughs> so we're going through the same things that you've been through. <laughs> that was him there. Um, yeah, people, well, it's very hard down the shops. People think we've stolen him uh, or something. This little albino kid. <laughs> Poor little fella. Anyway. He'll <laughs> do well in job interviews, at least, anyway. So, yeah, we've got yeah. to look forward to. But coming back to your point, I think um, politics is an exercise in populism. And I think uh, one of the reasons why politicians do very badly in terms of health reforms or managing pandemics yeah. is they do what's going to make them popular. Mm. Uh, and because we have a media that's populist as well, we don't get critical feedback from that media. Now, now the, the point that you make about metrics is that meaningful health reforms are based on desirable outcomes, which are measured explicitly. Mm. And uh, death rates, I mean, it's a bit like people say, um, these two surgeons have the same success rate for prostate cancer in that they've both got 75% survival rates. Mm. But in fact, if you look at it closely, one is 75% survival, but almost every single man is impotent and incontinent. Mm. Whereas the other person's achieving 75% with normal sexual and urinary function. And so if you said to the consumer before they start, what is the outcome you desire? The answer is I'd like to live, but I'd like to live competently. Mm. Um, so how you measure outcomes and the outcomes that you measure have to have value to the consumer. Yep. Uh, and they have to be measured explicitly. And the sort of gaming you just described, that's been going on for decades, mm. centuries. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's shameful. And it's one of the ways in which successive governments in both our countries have got away with inattention to indigenous people's health mm. because they just count things differently. Mm. That's uh, what it historically has made us really, really skeptical and um, mistrusting of institutions as indigenous people. But now it seems that mistrust is spread to everybody else as well. Um, yeah. I don't think anybody's trusting them anymore. I recall you told a story once of a, um, of a uh, there'd been a sexual assault, um, you know, by a doctor or a surgeon, I can't remember. But, um, you know, when you ask them about it, uh, the staff about it, they said, oh, yeah, Fingers is well known for that. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was his nickname. And then it, it had just, you know, becomes, he was just an eccentric guy in the culture of the place, and that was quite accepted. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of corruption in these places, and, you know, no wonder people are coming up with all kinds of bizarre conspiracy theories to... Um, to try and explain it and have a narrative. 
Yeah, well, look, I think what's happened, if I look at my career in medicine, which began in uh, 1971, um, in 1971, my value proposition was very straightforward. I knew things and could do things. Mm. And people came to me with a problem, and they came to me because I knew things and could do things. And the analogy I use is the London taxi driver. Remember, mm. I went to London in 1978. The knowledge. I got a um, taxi from Heathrow to London, and the value proposition of the taxi driver was very obvious. Uh, A, he could drive the taxi, but more importantly, he knew where we were going, and I didn't. Mm. So the value proposition was very straightforward. But I remember the last time I was in London, a couple of years ago, sitting in the back of the taxi looking at my phone, I had Google Maps up. And Google Maps told me there was a problem in the road ahead and that would end up being caught in it. And we were. I remember sitting in the back of the taxi saying, what am I paying this guy for? Mm. I have access to better intelligence than this guy. So what's the value proposition here? He's still doing an exam called the knowledge. He still has to memorize the streets yeah. of London. But I have access to better intelligence than him. In and real time. I'm still paying him for that value proposition. Well, the same thing's happened in health. We've democratized health information. It's now readily accessible to everybody. Uh, and indeed, it's accessible in a way where people can end up on all sorts of wild goose chases. But my value proposition is no longer knowing things. My value proposition now is helping people manage the information available to them right. and make the right decision. And that's a huge paradigm shift from being the person who knows to being the person that helps you with the information you have access to to make mm. the best decision for you. Mm. But we're still training health workers where the value proposition is knowing everything. But coming back to the point, because health information is democratized, it has uh, taken away the deification of health providers. It's taken away a lot of the status. And so I think people now are second guessing health experts in a way they would never have thought of doing when I was a baby doctor. I mean, patients came along and they were subservient. They did whatever they were told to do in whatever way they were told to do it, whereas now, are saying, well, that's not what I've read, and that's not what I've been told. And so I think we live in a, in a different world, and the fact that we do, we have democratised health information, mm. means that my patients don't come to see me as they were in the past, a blank sheet of paper. Mm. They, they now turn up with prejudices and biases and opinions, and, and some of them are on the money, and some of them are in cloud cuckoo land, but the reality mm. is uh, they, they come with formed opinions from their access to social media and so on and so forth. And even people who don't use social media are still influenced by it because you may not Google or you may not tweet, but the people you're talking to are. And, and that's, I think, one of the reasons for the growing mistrust between Maori people and health providers is that... Um, they're aware that a lot of the stuff they've been told is true over the years. We now don't believe it's true. Mm. They, 
they they've seen that um, some of the things done in the names of mental health or child protection have been abusive. Hmm. And you know, even things like the um, problems with the Catholic priesthood, it undermines confidence in authority. Hmm. Uh, and so I, I think the skepticism that now exists amongst Maori communities, and I assume Aboriginal communities, uh, in part is due to this profound change in the power balance between providers and consumers, because whereas before it was the power was entirely with me, mm-hmm. it's no longer true. At best, it's a shared authority or responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's an important um, distinction. You use the term consumer is yeah. very different from customer. Yeah. And when you were talking about the ideal proposition to begin with, you were speaking yeah. in terms of customers, yeah. but there has been a shift, you know, in policy towards using the term consumer yeah, more, like, which is uh, assuming a very passive role that I, just doesn't I, exist. For me, customer is a, a broad uh, concept, and the customers in health include the people who provide it people who consume it, mm. people who fund it, people who regulate it, people who educate. I mean, it's a very mm. broad church. Uh, but the people who really matter are the people who have health need or health seeking mm. to provide health services and the people who fund it. Those are the three groups that have to get their act together. Now, the problem in the past is that the relationship's been only a two-way relationship between providers and funders. Mm. And the customer group called consumers hasn't even been involved in the conversation. Mm. And so the outcomes or the outputs we've been measuring are those that matter to the funder and the provider, Mm. not to the consumer. And with all due respect, the outcomes are not the same. Yeah. Uh, If you talk to a group of people in the community and say, what would you want? an ideal world, what would you want in primary care? The answer would be access to a doctor I want to see when I need to see them, uh, after hours in particular, and I'd like home visits. But if you talk to providers like GPs, I would doubt that they'd volunteer that what they're looking forward to is doing after hours work, on call work, or visiting people in their homes. Mm. Uh, In fact, quite the opposite. They've moved away from that. Uh, and and they've been funded to move away from that. And yet the people in the street would regard seeing the GP they want to see on a Sunday afternoon or in their home because uh, dad's sick. They would see real value in that. Mm-hmm. So I think in recent times we've seen a willingness to engage the community in these conversations about health care. But, but I... I can I can see for all sorts of reasons why the community becomes skeptical. Uh, and as you mentioned before, we were chatting, that community is subject to all sorts of unsubstantiated mythological nonsensical conspiracy theories and all sorts of things. Now, distinguishing fact from fiction is becoming very difficult. Well, it is, but and particularly when there's, you know, you've got a lot of um, doctors who sort of realize that, wow, I could retire in two years if I just jump on YouTube and say, oh, COVID came from outer space and don't take the vaccine because it'll turn you into an alien. 
you know, if, if you're a really respected surgeon or, or you know, you know, immunologist or anything, you know, then you, uh, you can make a killing there. Oh, Just on YouTube views, you monetize that channel, you can, you can retire with 10 million bucks in a couple of years, flog off a self-published book on Amazon while you're at it, and you'll, uh, you'll have more people listening to you than, you know. <laughs> uh, but, but some of it's just bizarre. For example, you know, the Pfizer vaccine will make you magnetic. I mean, mm. what? Magnetic? Yeah. Uh, the Pfizer vaccine is going to turn you into a source metal? I mean, or, or some of the other things. I was at a meeting recently, and it was quite funny. Um, they, were talk they were asking me about messenger RNA vaccines and they said this thing's been developed with undue haste so it's not right messenger rna vaccines have been around for decades and all that's happened is that a situation arose covid where the size of the prize billions of dollars worth of uh, uh, prize was such that the investment in the vaccines accelerated them to the market mm. the amount of energy put in was proportional to the size of the prize. And I saw a list of the other day of people who've become billionaires because of the COVID. And most of them were vaccine developers. Right. Like messenger RNA vaccines have been around forever. Excuse me. All it took was a commercial environment where there was the opportunity for huge investment to get them to market. Mm. So it wasn't some sort of mysterious... Uh, vaccine developed overnight. In fact, they've been around forever. Mm. All it took was the potential for a large prize to accelerate mm. uh, the development. But anyway, I was talking about messenger RNA. Now, this woman said to me, um, in the, one of the questions from the audience was, uh, but won't uh, messenger RNA change me? I mean, won't it change my genetics? All I could say, you know, sarcastically was, Madam, in your case, I'm sorry to say it won't. Mm. Uh, and she didn't understand I was insulting her for quite a while. Uh, but our cells can't take up RNA. Yeah. Our cells can't use foreign RNA to produce DNA. It just doesn't, it's just not. The point I made to is if it was possible to use, to inject RNA and change your DNA, then we'd be able to cure all genetic diseases tomorrow. Mm. We'd, I mean, we'd be able to cure them tomorrow. But the point is this, her uh, literacy around genetics was so low that when someone said to her messenger RNA, she couldn't distinguish that in her mind from DNA or whatever. Mm. And, and she saw them as being interchangeable. So when someone said, look, you're injecting genetic material that can change your genetics, she found that credible, whereas in fact, biologically, it's impossible. Mm. Uh, and you know, she, she said to me, as she said to me, "Well, it isn't going to change." And all I could say was, "Tragically, in your case, I it won't." But as I say, she didn't quite understand I was being sarcastic. But yeah, um, <laughs> I, I think that sort of misinformation is presented in such a, a way to a moderately inarticulate community mm. that it, it, it um, develops momentum all of its own. Mm. Now you've got people genuinely scared that this vaccine 
is going to make them magnetic or to change the mm. genetics or well, it, or it'll you know there's going to be long-term fertility change and I, I see I, uh, this person said to me look I won't vaccinate my daughters because of long-term fertility change and I said well how is that even remotely possible the vaccine's only been used for two years there are no long-term data yeah so, well that that cuts the other way though too because it also suggests that well there's no long-term data that um proves uh safety over time well that's true that's true and that's when you have to rely upon when you look at studies on uh, ovulation and on uh, the sorts of ova that are produced and sperm production there's no effect mm. so you, you've got to rely then upon the, the biological safety studies that have been done that's mm. absolutely right there are no long-term data but I think one the other misconception that exists, Tyson, is that people compare the vaccine to nothing. The vaccine yeah. has a risk of myocarditis. The vaccine has a risk of pericarditis. Why would I take it? Well, the answer is, particularly with Omicron, there are two outcomes for you. You're going to encounter the virus through a vaccine or you're going to encounter the wild virus. But mm. you are going to encounter the virus. And so it's not is the vaccine safe compared to nothing it is what is the relative safety of the vaccine versus the impact of yeah getting COVID. and a lot of people i talk to say oh well the vaccine does this and the vaccine does that i said yeah but hang on what about the disease because with omicron you are going to encounter this virus mm. um, and so the issue, the issue then is not does the vaccine cause pericarditis but what's the relative risk of pericarditis with the vaccine versus the risk of pericarditis if you encounter yeah. the virus. So you, even you're getting that spike protein no matter what. You are going to encounter this virus. Uh, every, yeah. single, every single Australian will encounter this virus. Mm. Uh, no. Yeah, there's not, uh, you're not getting past it. <laughs> no. Yeah, I'd be interested to think about uh, timeframes with that and, and looking at the... Uh, the public health interventions and all that sort of thing and what's uh what's been well informed and, and and what's not and where where they need to go and all that kind of stuff but first i want to talk about james bond yeah. uh, 007 i don't know if you've seen the latest one yeah. <laughs> that's i mean <laughs> it's not helping is it when you've got a plot that's 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 about a you know a um you know a vaccine like thing that's made of nanobots that's targeting uh, people's DNA so that you could target particular, you know, and just as there's like a, a black female 007, she's sort of threatened by a, a scientist or like, I'll wipe out your whole race. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think um, a lot of people have trouble distinguishing science fiction from science. And the most recent James Bond movie was science fiction. And nanotechnologies, uh, certainly they are being actively investigated. Uh, but while you may use a nanotechnology to correct a genetic defect, no one's even remotely close to using nanotechnology to create a new genome. I mean, or in this case, in the case of 007, to produce a lethal. Hmm outcome so I think how, the, how about crispr 
the CRISPR technology. How's that coming along? I don't know. Uh, gene editing stuff. I mean, you can pick it up, pick up a kit for ten grand, and make glow in the dark puppies in your yeah. in your shed out the back. <laughs> Look, I think um, the thing about genetics uh, and genetic modification is because we can doesn't mean we should. Mm. I think it's true that there's been a lag between the technology and the ethical debate yeah. about what it's reasonable to do. And I know the ethicists want to catch up because, the, as I said, because you can do something doesn't mean you should do mm. something. So I think there is a, uh, an ethics debate to be had yet about um, what is ethical in terms of genetic modification. Mm. Most of us would agree that if you can genetically modify someone with Huntington's career to prevent the onset of the illness, that's something you should do. Mm. But what about desirable physical characteristics? Or what mm. about skin colour? Or what about, you know, somewhere between Huntington's career and uh, genetic modifications to produce which are a cosmetic there's clearly a, a line in the sand there mm. somewhere um, but the ethical debate which needs to occur in the community is lagging behind the technology mm. um, i mean we, we can grow hearts we can grow a heart um, well that's fantastic in terms of someone who needs a heart transplant but how far is the community prepared to go in letting us grow organs? Um, so I think the point you raise is very valid and it reflects the fact that I was mentioning about the democratisation of health information. But what's missing then is the interchange between health professionals like me and community communities to help them take that information and make it Symbol, rational, and so on. Yeah, well, the trick is doing that without it being propaganda. Yeah, well, which, that's, um, that's that's it's something that um, it's something that's disturbed me. So I've seen on the on the crazy side with the conspiracy theories, you know, you're seeing stuff that's very propaganda-like coming up there. But then what really bothered me was the pushback uh, from that, which was you know a, a lot of public communications from governments around the world that. That were um, that also seemed to me to have all the hallmarks of propaganda as well. I think the uh, COVID pandemic has been politicised. I think most governments have reaped significant political reward for that politicisation. There are some exceptions. Clearly, Donald J. Trump didn't receive a, any really political reward for his behaviour around COVID. But for most other politicians. It's been very politically rewarding, and there's no question mm. that those politicians have used propaganda. No question. Mm. And the predominant message is, we are the best in the world at what we're doing, and we're the you know we're the best in show, and we're the envy of the world. Because uh, remember that every three or four or five years, politicians have to win a popularity contest. Mm. It's an exercise in popularity. That's uh, it. So the problem is that when you let politicians loose governing a health issue or a pandemic, uh, you shouldn't expect anything other than 
propaganda and uh, an inability to learn and misleading statements because they're politicians. Yeah. If you get bitten by a shark when you're in the ocean, don't blame the shark. That's what they do. <laughs> uh, if you see politicians engaging in populist behaviour and making misleading statements and engaging in propaganda, well, don't get upset. That's what they do. Yeah. It's the the difference, process. I mean, the where that analogy falls down is that you, you can always, uh, you know, know the ocean and, and not swim where the sharks are. Um, but, you know, in, <laughs> in terms of, you know, participation, you know, in this democracy and, and in this uh, civilization in which we're living, you know, you pretty much, you have to swim um, at sunset um out past the breakers you know <laughs> you must you know um murray horn and i are uh, writing a review of health in new zealand for the new zealand initiative at the moment that's a think tank and the two things that matter i think for individuals are participation and independence and you've got to get that balance right mm. people want to have health care which enables them to participate in the society. Mm. But they also want independence, to be able to be independent. And getting that blend right between participation and independence uh, isn't necessarily easy, particularly for our species who are very social. I mean, if you consider Neanderthal man was bigger than sapiens, smarter than sapiens, stronger than sapiens, so you ask the question, well, then how did Homo sapiens replace Neanderthal when Neanderthal is bigger, stronger, smarter? And the answer is Neanderthal wandered around in groups of one or two, whereas sapiens is capable of complex social constructs. And our huge advantage was our ability to socialize and produce a social group where the impact of that social group was far greater than mm. individuals. There was some interbreeding, clearly, because um, some races have 5-10% Neanderthal DNA, but our reality as a species is that we aggregate socially, we engage mm. socially, we behave mm. socially. So participation is, that, is a cornerstone of us as a species, but getting the ability to participate but have the independence you want or deserve uh, is a difficult blend, but that's what mm. we're fighting about. How do you achieve a health system which can achieve the sorts of level of participation someone wants, but the sort of level of independence that they want? Mm. It's really funny um, how they, I don't know, and, and here's another thing where we critique and mistrust the science as Indigenous people. And, you know, it was just uh, 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 just after they discovered that, um, you know, Europeans had up to 10% Neanderthal DNA. About five minutes later, they discovered that Neanderthals are actually smarter than sapiens. <laughs> oh, no, they're not all Uga Booger and, you know, um, running around with a small brain. They're actually super intelligent. They're actually better than sapiens. <laughs> it's, yeah. You're like, how long have you been sitting on that data? <laughs> well, that's right. 
remember that um, history is written by the winners and uh, the ability to publish uh, is determined by editors and they they have metrics that they have to meet. Mm. Um, and in terms of, you know, but you'd have to say in terms of European civilization, for much of that civilization, they've been held back by restrictive religious views that have edited what's available. Catholic Church in particular, I'm always mm. raised a Catholic, but a Catholic Church in particular, um, for centuries, heavily edited what was available to communities. I mean, uh, and they were able to do that because the priests were literate, the communities weren't. Mm. Uh, but anything which didn't fit with the sort of Christian history of the planet was simply crushed. Yeah. That, that was largely for financial reasons as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, they, they maximized. I mean, they, they, they really, I mean, they, they completely changed the structure of um, families back in the day. Yeah. Um, much of the Northern Hemisphere, um, you know, purely... <laughs> purely to be able to have individuals owning property rather than families and clans owning property and extended families. They just did that through changing the marriage laws and they were able to completely restructure everything so that it was individual wealth that they could, uh, you know, guilt people or scare people into signing over at their death, you know, uh, to the church so they could get a free ticket into heaven. Um, yeah, which completely that arguably that really did uh, change the course of history in some pretty horrendous ways. It's probably a truism that uh, the Pope's decision that priests couldn't marry had everything to do with property mm. and, and inheriting property because if the priest died, any property he had would return to the church. If there was a wife involved, then that made it far more complicated. Yeah. I think, you know, the breakdown of Christianity in those societies coincides with this health literacy, coincides with a growing distrust of authority. Mm. Uh, and the end result is that uh, it's no longer, I can no longer make a pronouncement which people will take an article of faith. I have to support that. And so I mm. should. And so I should. The question then though becomes why has this had such a, a greater effect on indigenous communities to our disadvantage? Mm. Uh, we Māori uh, were highly vulnerable to Christianity when it arrived. Mm. Uh, and uh, Māori became very Christian overnight. And one of the reasons for that is that many of the early Europeans who came to New Zealand were missionaries. And so they learnt missionary English, or they were taught English by people who invented learning Christian doctrine. Uh, and although we have some Maori type Christian religions like Ratna, uh, Maori, particularly Pacifica, became, that, well, Pacifica in particular are far more adherent Christians than any European community mm. in, this, in this country. So the, the early colonizers of New Zealand brought with them some attitudes towards health, which are not helpful. But they also brought with them uh, a missionary zeal to convert the natives 
to Christianity. And what's interesting, particularly Pacifica people, uh, still are hugely influenced by the church. And if a, a minister or a priest in a Pacifica community says vaccinations are bad, then that entire mm. congregation will believe vaccinations are bad. Yeah. And we've had that. Mm. That's a terrible church they get they get um, conscripted into, you know. Um, so you know, people migrating to Australia, like Pacifica people, um, you know, straight away they're conscripted into this particular brand of church that you know demands quite a massive percentage of their income yeah. in in a tithe um, yeah. that you know really sets them at a disadvantage and um, is a source of a lot of problem for a lot of families here. Yeah, no, totally. And uh, and the status of the minister, priest, whatever, is such that misinformation coming from them mm. is hugely impactful. Uh, so one of the things we need to recognise is that where we focus our attention in terms of education actually has to be at the level of those sorts of thought leaders or opinion leaders. Mm. It also means a lot of us end up with... Um... With harmonies that don't belong here in our corroborees. So, <laughs> it was a, um, the missionaries that came here, of course, were, you know, coming from coming from the islands as well, <laughs> and, and they brought a lot of Pacifica stuff here that um, has just sort of made its way into the culture. So, you know, everybody was taught to sing hymns um, using, you know, Pacifica harmonies <laughs> here, and you actually find that coming into sing, you know. Uh, traditional songs as well uh, which is interesting in some places yeah well, yeah it's, it's it, well so we come back you and i to that central question of um, the inequities which exist mm. and welfare between indigenous communities and the colonizers of countries uh, and it's clearly murray in my view is that there's no point if, expecting the system which created the inequity to fix the inequity. Mm. Uh, that's an act of insanity to believe that doing more of the same will suddenly produce a different outcome. Mm. So we, are, we genuinely believe that uh, we need local solutions for local need and they have to be embedded in existing social structures yeah. which have influence and power and that our job is not to get in and do things, but it's to equip those communities with the ability to do things. Um, and that may seem paternalistic, but it's meant to be the dead opposite of paternalism. Yeah. It sounds like you're wanting to embed an anarcho-syndicalist model of public health in the middle of a representative <laughs> democracy that's um, uh, quite socialist and focused on centralising bureaucracy yeah, in a capital city. Precisely right. I think um, there's a big difference between expecting uh, similar outcomes across the country from saying that the systems have to be similar mm. across the country. No, they don't. We expect yeah. similar outcomes. But the vehicle we're going to use to achieve those outcomes will vary Mm. Yeah. Well, we do know that diversity means resilience in systems. If yeah. you're looking for long-term systemic health, so 
Yeah, that's systems health. Well, look, I mean, you so you you have a you've had a, a long career doing some really high level um, policy, you know, um, work around the globe in lots of different medical systems. So you're right across all of them and the history of them from quite a long term point of view. Um, but you also have that 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 indigenous complexity lens, you know, um, um, across the entire thing. And I know you don't call yourself a futurist, but I see you primarily as that, you know, a lot of the times when I, I've seen you map out, you know, from past through to present and then uh, projecting into, you know, where things are going in the next five years, 10 years, 50 years, um, I'd, I'd call you a pretty amazing futurist. So I wonder if um, we want to do the home stretch uh, coming into a few, um, you know, understandings of the patterns that we're seeing and where these are going and uh, where we need to direct our, our attention and our inquiry. Well, from a um, starting small COVID, will continue to evolve to become more infectious but less virulent. And within maybe this year, not much longer, we will have reached an accommodation because that's what happens with viruses. They evolve to infect more people but kill fewer. And you can understand that because if they remain lethal, they die, they die out. Mm. Uh, so that's one prediction. The other, in terms of healthcare for Indigenous people, um, I'm really concerned that um, despite a decade now or two decades of recognising the inequity and strong voices, there has been no real address. And I call this the political economy of healthcare. Mm. Political economies exist because there are groups with vested interests who have very powerful uh, lobbying. G general practitioners would be a, an example of a mm. political economy. And often they are accompanied by a consumer group that have similar interests. And so what happens was that uh, when money becomes tight, these people end up getting most of it. But even when more money is coming into health, they're well positioned to take advantage of that and to gain most of the new money. And that's why when new money comes in, it uses around reducing waiting lists or reducing the costs of care to people. But it's not around new services. Mm. But if you look at Indigenous people, who's our provider group that's creating, who's the provider group leading the argument that this needs more funding? Who are the providers that have a vested interest in better health care for Māori or Aboriginal people? Where's the political economy? Uh, and so because governments are populist, they're very vulnerable. I mean, if you track health care in this country, in New Zealand, uh, over the last 50 years, uh, there has been almost no shift in funding. Hmm. Uh, these political economies are highly, highly effective. Uh, and so my concern is until we have a group of health providers who genuinely see their interests as being, as being aligned with the interests of marginalised groups, Indigenous peoples and so on, um, the money will continue to flow to provide existing services 
in an existing ways and accessed as usual. Uh, and uh, the only alternative to that is that you take power away from the providers and give the power to communities. In other words, you give the money to consumers. And so I think we'll see increasingly the community becoming budget holders. Mm. It's happening with disabled people. Disabled people are increasingly given their budget and they can employ health providers to look after them. Uh, and real time tracking means that their transactions can be followed. And what we're finding is disabled people are very good purchases of healthcare for themselves. Mm. So my prediction would be providers will continue to look after themselves and that the change we're going to see progressively for disabled people and then for people with chronic disease will be giving those people budgets to manage. In other words, the power, because the political economies uh, over the last century have, have not embraced mm. the needs of marginalised people or marginalised groups. Or... So is that really likely to happen under the command and control structure you were referencing before, which well, is becoming increasingly more authoritarian? Um, are you really seeing that, that, that the future will hold you know, patients uh, gaining more autonomy in how their money is spent. I, I recall in the late 90s, they said the same thing was going to happen with education um, when all these portable uh, devices for accessing the internet came out. Um, they were talking about eduware and that all students, you know, they wouldn't have to go to school. They could do it from anywhere and that they would be able to choose what they learned and they, they would purchase their own education packages, etc. That never happened. No, if yeah. anything, it, it went back more through the culture wars after 9-11. It was rolled back even more into command and control and uh, returned to basics, back yeah, to yeah. basics, etc. Education is even more fraught than it health. Mm. Uh, for example, I think the only ministry in New Zealand that's more incompetent than the health ministry is the education ministry. Yeah. I think uh, the... the uh, deconstructed approach to learning didn't work because there are some fundamentals you do need for higher learning. Yeah. Uh, so I think it was an, uh, an, an exercise in excess. Mm. Uh, the, the exercise in disabled people having their budgets actually happened. Mm. Yeah. That's actually happening. But in terms of extending it to people with chronic disease and so on, I think we'll need a change in government. Right. Uh, I think that's at least 50-50 at the next election. If there is a change in government, then a change to individual budget holdings will become uh, part of the landscape. Mm. Basically, it's assuming... See, the argument against it is, oh, what, say you have someone who uh, recklessly uses the budget. The answer is, so what? Mm. Uh, actually, the defence against that is that because you can track their transactions in real time, if they start going off the rails, you can pick it up pretty quickly, actually. Mm. But if you look at the extraordinary waste of money which currently occur, I mean, you'd need a lot of people misusing their budget before you got anywhere near the current level yeah. of waste. 
and the, the, the experience with the thousands now, thousands of people who are budget managing, is that quite prudent? Hmm. So rather than recklessly going out and buying Ferraris, they are quite prudent in how they hmm. use, use their money because ultimately they, the quality of their life will end up being determined by the decisions they make. Yeah. It's, it, changes, it's, it changes the whole power balance. It does. But another potential uh, thing that could change the power balance there is people realizing that as, um, you know, as customers, as patients and communities, that they're actually bringing a value proposition to the table too now in terms of um, their data. Their medical data has value. It It is the biggest resource and potentially, I mean, it's the product. It's the product that uh, <laughs> yeah, potentially that's happening there. So, um, you yeah. know, how, how's that going to go? Will it continue to just be mined from people or end up on a blockchain or will people, you know, find ways to encrypt it and, and sell their data as needed and get some value back? Or is it going to be that that will be the exchange that's required in order to access care? Which way will that go? Um, I don't know. Uh, I suspect that. Uh, once we routinely, not for emergency medicine, but once we routinely allow people with chronic disease to be budget holders mm. and, to, and to employ their providers, there is such a power shift there that I think mm. uh, ownership of data will inherently shift to the individual. Must do. Yeah. Because if I'm if I'm a budget holder and I'm employing you as my doctor, and I'm employing you, mm. then there's no doubt where the uh, ownership sits. sits with yep. uh, so I think data ownership and data sovereignty are inevitably mm. going to become uh, the consumer's property. Well, that, I, I think that, that um, yeah, but then, then that will lead to massive spikes in the sales of you know, monoclonal antibodies and ivermectin and, and um, hydroxychloroquine. And, <laughs> you know, if people get to choose their own providers, you can end up with a lot of, um, you know, people seeking medical health practitioners who who are, you know, being guided in their diagnosis by astrology and, and freaking <laughs> all kinds of stuff. I think that's, that's where the transactional funding um, operates in the sense that, if you see someone wandering off uh, and engaging with homeopaths routinely, you can intervene. Okay. Uh, and you're right about monoclonal antibodies are a good thing. Ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are simply unproven treatments. Um, so uh, it's not like um, a big, big daddy overseeing everything you're doing. But because these transactions can be tracked in real time, yeah, you can pick up people who are becoming increasingly, uh, well, who are deviating from sensible. Mm-hmm. But in fact, what we've found is that that's rare. That's actually rare. Um, people who have their own budgets are showing themselves to be very sound purchases. Okay. Without that exception. Well, ultimately, it's their quality of life that's going to benefit or suffer. Who'd have thought it? You give people sovereignty, and <laughs> and suddenly they they they, 
they stop uh, following conspiracy theories and and wearing mega hats. Yep. So imagine that. <laughs> uh, well, it's been good to catch up with you again. Tom. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you're a good guy. I like it. Uh, same way. I was so excited when when I reached out. I thought oh, he's not going to remember me. You're like, yay! Hey guys, remember you. That was the best. Yeah. No, I've um. Yeah, I really love this. It's that's um. I don't well, know if anybody else is going to love it. I don't know if anybody will listen. We're just nerding out on public health. I mean, who's interested in that? <laughs> Everybody. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Des. Okay, Tyson. Okay. Bye.